questions. Um, I try to record these uh, on my phone and pop and pop it onto the church's podcast or uh, whatever it's called the the church website, which then feeds into a podcast. So our sermons and Bible studies are all on there. So if you're able, if you're not able to be here uh, in a week and you want to see what we talked about the previous week, you can hop on there. And Beth also is sending out. She should have sent one out this week, like a reminder and, and a link. Cool. Well. Um, just as by, by way of very quick review, last week we talked generally about what is worship, what's the purpose of worship in the Lord's Church, especially from our perspective, like why are we here? That's obviously a, a key point, like for, if, if, church, if the purpose of church is to convince you of something, the entire design of the worship experience, the content of the preaching, everything is then, uh, takes on a different more of a sales kind of a tone. I'm trying to persuade you to, to make a decision or to, or to change your life or to form yourself. The music uh, is, is changes to kind of get you in an emotional state where you're more likely to, to make the decision to whether it's, and when it comes to decision theology, make a decision for Jesus um, or reform your life or rededicate yourself to Christ or all these kind of like things versus the starting point of the, the back of page the, 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 on page two of your handout, the dead raccoon roadkill there, actually being in a state of, of dead before God. In our sin, we are unable to do anything. So it's not that we're, that we're like in the water, flailing around trying to call for help, um, but rather we are, we are, as the scriptures say, dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1, there are the, quote, the quotes below. Um, I'm not exactly, I think, I think we read through those two quotes, didn't we, last week? I don't know. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he made us alive with Christ. That is our life. That's a daily, it's not just what, with once with holy baptism, the Lord actually uh, kills our old sinful self and brings to life, we, the scriptures call the new Adam. He makes us alive and gives us new life in him. And that's a daily thing. So every, for the Christian, every morning begins with, you could say every morning begins with murder. So we wake up and we kill the old sinful self. So we, we wake up in the morning and I'm baptized. And the, the, within us in any given moment is simultaneously a sinner. As long as we're in our flesh, I'm always going to be a sinner. Um, and with that comes all the consequences of sin and also death. So death actually being at the end of my earthly journey, but then also death is always breaking in. Whenever I get a cold, whenever I stub my toe, whenever I feel sad or whatever these things are, the, the, the consequences of sin are always kind of breaking into my life and doing damage all along the way. But also simultaneously, I am called a saint. That is a holy one. Next week, we're actually celebrating uh, St. Michael and all angels. So, uh, and I'm preaching, so I always take the first few minutes to demystify, like, when you say saint in church, like, you always have to unpack that a little bit, because depending on your church background, you might have, maybe you used to be Catholic or something, and you're like, have this weird interpretation of saints as being, well, people pray to saints, and that's confusing, and it's, it's rightfully considered to be confusing, or to... Do, can we talk about saints? Yeah. So saint simply means holy one. And we t the angels, like St. Michael, is, a, is the day we kind of consider angels. And the angels are holy because God made them sacred and holy. And they're, they're apart from sin. Uh, those who have died in the faith, all who have died in the faith before us are saints. So we remember on All Saints Day, November 1st, uh, we remember all the saints who have gone before us in the faith and are now fully saint, fully holy in heaven, clothed in the right, right, white robes of Jesus. That's that picture of Revelation 7, the white robes wearing the, waving the palm branches of victory. So they're holy, not on anything within them, but they're covered in the holiness of Jesus. So their holiness is given to them. We get to be a little bit of both, uh, or as it should say, we are all of both in our sinful flesh. So I'm all sinner, so my, my flesh uh, suffers the consequence of sin, and I know death is this ever-present, looming, th we talked about Psalm 23, I believe, last week, the, the shadow of death, that it kind of stays with me in my life. And yet, simultaneously, though I look in the mirror and see the effects of aging, 
um, despite however much hair I think I have, I look in the mirror and the consequences of sin and baldness are staring me in the face. We're getting older, creeping toward, creeping toward the end, sickness and all that. And yet I'm looking in the mirror and, and I hear from the promise of our Lord Jesus that I am holy, that I am eternal, that I am sinless because my sin has been stripped from me and given to Jesus on the cross. So both of these things are simultaneously true, that I am both sinner and saint. The, the Latin phrase is simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. And that's a key thing because in my Christian life, I'm regularly going, because of that dynamic, I, I, we come to church, we start off with the forgiveness of sins and absolution because I need it. I'm in my sinful flesh. But, I, but I'm baptized. My sins are all forgiven. Jesus died for all my sins. Yes, that's true. We're always fully saint, fully Christian, and yet at the same time, fully sinner. And that, uh, that's in the background of how we approach every single day, that the Lord is with me, giving me new life. And my, it's usually, it's pictured in the cartoons with like, consider goofy, wanting to make a decision about something. And there's like an angel over here and a demon over here trying to persuade him to make a decision or whatever. That's actually, I think, a good representation of what Romans 7 describes as this conversation that's happening within the Christian. That the, the old sinful self within me is wanting to do evil, but then the Christian self within me is striving toward good. So it's both me's at the same time fighting against one another, as Paul says. So we were dead in our trespasses and God made us alive. Flip over to three. Romans 6, and this is key. We read it at, at funerals. Um, this is the, we could say, the quintessential baptismal passage. Um, there's a famous hymn, God's Own Child, I Gladly Say It. I'm not sure if we're singing that. We have a baptism coming up this, this Sunday. Yeah, so whenever, whenever there's a baptism, Beth Hahn, who you all know, our secretary, she, she, she started making these like 25 years ago. And then she, now she just can't stop. And so she like designs them. She, she, the back color matches the liturgical season. So we're in the green Pentecost season. So uh, matches that. And then she can, if it's a girl, she puts in pink and she puts the name on there. And usually sometimes the, the date of the baptism. That's kind of fun. Um, why? So that like in my house, we take those banners off and we slap it on the wall like over the girl's bed. And now as they grow up, they, now they know we can talk about their baptism. Anyway, when there's a baptism, we'll sing, God's own child, I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ. So that comes from Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us, do you not know, everybody knows, this is kind of an assumed, don't you know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ, so this is this like, movement from one thing into another. I'm baptized into Christ, was baptized into his death. We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So to be in, so this, the language of baptism move, taking us from one place and moving us into a different place and us being passively moved in that. It actually really helps underscore the passivity of, of, our, of our salvation, especially in like infant baptism or all of baptism. We are moved from death into life. And now that he's moved me into life, I walk in that new life. See? So I'm, I'm, he's placed me here. And now this life that I have, I'm walking covered in the righteousness of Jesus where he's put me. And that has a, there's actually a trajectory. I know where I'm going. I know where I've been. I know how I'm supposed to be living my life. God has ordered my life. And we'll talk about that in the 10 commandments. Uh, verse five, for if we have been united with him, joined together with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So I died, my old self, my old self. So I've got a new Christian self and an old, an old self. My old self died with Christ. For one who has died has been set free from sin. I'm free from sin and yet I am constantly tempted by my sin and I'm living in my sinful body that that uh, is moving toward death. So I'm simultaneously, these things are all true, that I'm set free from sin. 
according to my Christian self, and yet I'm still in bondage to my sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's my life. I'm constantly dying to my old sinful self and I'm alive, I'm living, walking in my new life in Christ. Now, some of this is pictured actually, if you've been to a funeral here or um, really typically in, in Christian churches, this is very common. Um, a couple of key things. We put the casket in the front and um, we cover it in a thing called a pall, a big white sheet. And that's, that's only a picture of, and I, I tell people, because usually people want to have like, let's have a bi big picture of grandma here in the front. Well, that's great. We have a great big picture of grandma in the back when everybody comes in and gets the bulletin and everything. But the reason why we're rejoicing this day is not because of grandma, sweet as she might have been. We're rejoicing this day because grandma is covered in the holiness of Jesus. She's baptized into, she was taken from death and put into Christ. And so we cover up grandma with that white sheet. And that's also the picture of Revelation 7, with the saints before the throne of God clothed in white robes, singing praises to the lamb who is slain and now lives. So we have that picture of that with, uh, with the, at the casket. Also, you might find these are all obviously man-made things, uh, human innovations to help remind us of eternal biblical truths. Um, this is our, uh, I call it a baptismal candle. It's, a, it's called a paschal candle. Pascha means suffer or uh, Easter. So every Easter, every Saturday before Easter, there's a special service called an Easter vigil where we, we, did it. we hear all these scripture promises of the Old Testament, a lot of water stories, a lot of God bringing his salvation from death into life. And uh, usually, historically, the Easter vigil service, there'd be baptisms in the church, and we dedicate a new, a new candle. It's got the year on there. These candles are very expensive, so we figured out we just scratch off the the last digit and replace that one. It's cheaper to buy a sticker than a new candle every year. <laughs> but when you buy them, they're like this tall and the little acolyte, the little third grade acolyte can't reach it. It's always fun to watch them try to light the candle. But the reason why we do this, uh, for one, it, it gives the acolyte something to do and that's fun. But really it connects a couple of key things. We only light this candle in Easter time, Easter tide, that seven week season of Easter. And whenever there's a saint day, so I believe we'll light it on St. Michael and all angels next week. So whenever we remember particularly the death of a saint or martyr, we light it at Easter, saint day, and at a baptism or a funeral. And the reason is that in our baptism, we are united to Christ, as Romans 6 says. So that I'm gonna light this candle of baptism when I got a brand new spanking baby who's, who's got a whole life ahead of him or her. Uh, and we light the candle reminding that we're baptizing her into the life of Christ. So that when she ends up over here in the casket, we're gonna light the candle to remind us of the same thing. So we're tying all this together. And ultimately the, the key, the glue is Easter. We light it on Easter because Jesus died and rose and we're baptized into the death and resurrection. So it's just a candle, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's all, it's all human stuff, but it, it reminds, especially for the acolytes, it did, it, we have acolytes, the guys who light the candle, girls, guys who light the candles. The primary reason we have acolytes is to get their parents to come to church when they're scheduled to be acolytes. <laughs> so we're actually, we were talking, there's some families who like only come to church when they're, when they're working, when they're an usher or a, helping serve communion or the kids are acolytes. So we're like, we should start coming up with more stuff for the acolytes to do. So we're looking to buy more torches. And we just have a lot of like, especially fourth and fifth graders. In seventh grade, the kids start becoming too cool to be involved. And that's super annoying. But in fourth grade, they're chomping at the bits to get involved. So we're like, let's give them stuff to do. So we're gonna have like fourth graders carrying torches. So we'll have torch bearers, a crucifer, the guy who carries the, the, the processional cross, a book bearer, these are all just like, it gets the kids involved. And when we're back here getting dressed, we're like asking them like, hey, how, so how's school going? Oh, you're in track, how's track going? And then also, by the way, oh, we're lighting the baptism candle. Do you know why we do that, by the way? And that we get to talk about baptism. 
we'll pull them aside after the service and talk about why we do the stuff that we do. So it's like, it gives us a chance to kind of form cool relationships with these kids, but ultimately teaching the faith. So that's Romans 6, and that's the life of, of uh, being baptized from death into life. Uh, the, there's two ways, the way of life and the way of death that the Lord has placed before us. And we, he sets us in this way of life, of walking in, his, walking in his holiness. And that is ordered then by his Ten Commandments. And we see his Ten Commandments as a, as a gift. And we'll talk about that, I believe, next week already. But first, with the remaining time that we have, I want to get into the name. That's uh, a, big, a big conversation. I'll, I'll give you the expedited version. Uh, the Lord Jesus calls us together in worship, and we begin in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or you'll see sometimes, like when I begin prayers, I always begin in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The name of Jesus, the name of God is always popping up. We ba- I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's all this name stuff? What's the significance of a, of a name? We have a name. We write it on a name tag. I can take off my name tag and slap it on something else or put it on Kids are always putting it on my back. <laughs> it's a stupid strategy because it's got your name. I know who did it. Your name is on it, you know? But anyway, but, your, but your, our name tag is not us. The Lord's name is different. Where he puts his name, he puts more than just vocables that are attached to describe him. So we look at the, and I, put, I think I put all the scriptures in here just for our, to, to speed our conversation. So um, page three, what is the Lord's name? From Exodus 3, Moses said to God, remember the context here? Moses had, uh, he'd been raised in Egypt as an Israelite slave baby that was then kind of saved from death. He's raised, and then he, he kills an Egyptian, flees from Egypt, uh, and then God calls him back to, to set God's people free from Egypt. And he does this with, it's funny, I, have you ever, anybody seen Three Amigos? Whenever I talk about the burning bush, I always want to say singing bush. And I've done it like from the pulpit on an accident before. It's always, but it's, no one gets it unless you're a scene three amigos, which is a very select people who like watched like bad comedy from the 80s. But anyway, uh, so Moses is there staying before the, the burning bush. Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Who is this God? What do I say to them? Who's this God that I'm supposed to say is setting you free? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Notice that the, I didn't make that text different. This was like the built-in font of the copy-paste from our Bible software. And you'll notice in your Bible, very often in the Old Testament in particular, uh, when you're reading through and you'll see the word Lord, sometimes you'll see it capital L, lowercase O-R-D, or lowercase L, lowercase O-R-D, like talking about like my Lord from like Downton Abbey type reference. Uh, capital L is a reference to God, but when you see L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the translation from this, I am who I am, which is in Hebrew, any guesses? Yahweh. So it's only like four letters and it looks like gibberish. And in fact, I mean, our, our, our Jewish friends can't, won't even say the word because they're, they're worried about messing it up. So that's it without vowels, that's it. So some people, you'll see this tattoo on people. Uh, so when the Lord says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, the Jews say, well, you know what? I have a better chance of not taking the Lord's name in vain if I just don't say his name at all. Which Luther points out in the catechism, by the way, he says, well, to, to, if you're not using the name at all, you're also not using it right. The Lord said we should use it, but rightly, we call upon it when we're in trouble. We pray, praise, and give thanks. We don't abuse it or use it wrongly. But that's his name. That's, that's uh, our, our word for Yahweh. And so whenever you run across this in the Old Testament, it's usually translated in all caps. This means, this is the, this is the Hebrew B verb. When we're teaching our kids English, like we, we start with the most basic verb, is, am, are, was, were. This is Hebrew B verb. So God's name happens to also be his being. That's why it's translated, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So the Lord's name is more than just a title. His name is his being. That's, it's, very, it's a bizarre thing, 
to wrap our minds around, but it's, it's easy in the sense of we, we have trouble wrapping our mind around lots of spiritual things. But so where God puts his name has this more of a presence about it. And we see this coming up throughout the Old Testament. Here's a big selection of 1 Kings 4 when Solomon is praying for the dedication of the temple. Uh, Lord, you're a great, you're a great big God uh, up there in heaven, but how, you, I want, we want you to be here among us. And so he, he asks his prayer for the Lord's presence to be here in verse, or he, I, I took out the verse number. So down there in the middle, now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord. Houses are expensive. I build a house for my children, but for a name, it seems like a waste of money. I mean, think about that. What do you mean a house for a name? But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, he didn't say for me, for my name. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house, but your son, Solomon, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Next, uh, let's see, the Lord promised as I have built the house for my name. Obviously, you're getting the point. Lots of name in the house here. Flip the page. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, you're a great big God. There's no God like you in heaven above or earth beneath. Behold, the highest heaven can't contain you, much less this little house. But have regard for this prayer uh, of your servant and this plea, O Lord, capital L, capital O-R-D, that's Yahweh, my God, listening to the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes shall be open night and day toward this house, this place to which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may, here it comes, listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel, and when you pray, when they pray toward this place, Listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now, this is key. So the Lord takes his name. Now, let me back up just a second. Where, where is God? Very easy answer. Everywhere. Omnipresent, right? God's all places at all times. So if I'm living in Israel at the time of the temple, I can be living up in like Galilee where Jesus is from and the temple's way down in Jerusalem and I know God is with me. Even though I'm up in Cana or up in wherever I am, God is with because God is everywhere. But God is not everywhere with his sure and certain promises of mercy toward us. Luther used to say, you can go to the bottom of the ocean and find and know that God is there, but he won't be a God for you according to mercy. Why? What happens to you if you go down to the bottom of the ocean? Your lungs explode or implode or whatever happens, right? Same with space, going into outer space. God is there, we'll die. Top of a mountain in the afternoon, that's like the number one thing you're not supposed to do. And I'm, we're, my previous parish was in Colorado. Tourists, every year, tourists would die from getting struck by lightning because they would sleep in in the morning, get breakfast, work their way over to the trailhead and start off on their like 12 mile hike at 10 in the morning, which means they're gonna be like up on top of this mountain, right as the storms inevitably come over at like one or two in the afternoon. And they're above the tree line, and then you get struck by lightning. Every year that was happening. But God was there on top of the mountain, but he wasn't there according to mercy. So, and that's the same for people who say, oh, God, or uh, God, pastor, I, I, was, I, I can go golfing on Sunday because God is at the golf course. So, yes, God is at the golf course but he's not there for you with his sure and certain promises of mercy. He locates his name and presence, particularly in particular places for our certainty that we are forgiven. That's what he did for Israel when he puts his name in the temple so that if I'm an Israelite, I'm trying to get down to the temple as often as I can. But I'm live, even if I can't, because it's super inconvenient to get down there, especially like if you gotta haul a bunch of goats with you for a sacrifice or something. That's where when Jesus is, Think about when Jesus is a baby, he's taken to the temple. He goes back when he's 12, when they lose him at the temple, right? They had to hike all the way down from Galilee to get down there. Uh, but they would go because there at the temple is his promise of the Lord's forgiveness. His name was in the place. His name was in the temple with a certainty that God would hear our prayers and forgive us. Number four, where else was this name? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall 
Bless the people of Israel, you shall say to them, this will sound familiar to you, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Where have you heard that before? That's a benediction, the Aaronic benediction that we give at the end of a service. But no, what we don't say is this next verse, which is very helpful. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So this same name that required a house in the temple, God takes and he puts, he slaps it on his people, which means even if I'm up in Cana, I know that, okay, God's down in the temple to forgive my sins, but I also know that God is not with me generically, but he's with me because God's name is on me. And coincidentally, that's why we, we begin the service in the Lord's name, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So we begin the Lord's service in, in the Lord's name, but also we finish it. But we don't say we finish this service in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see the benediction. And by the benediction, the Lord's saying, so shall I put my name upon the people as we send them out into the world. You know that God is with you. He put his name on you in holy baptism. He's slapping your name on you in this benediction and he's sending you out into the world. So that wherever you go, you have the certainty that the Lord is with me. Uh, very quickly, number five, the name at the time of Jesus. So we get this in, in between the temple and holy baptism, the presence of God that was once in a temple now becomes flesh in the person of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, verse nine from Colossians, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So what was once this, this like non-body name of God in the temple takes on human flesh, and locates itself in the person of Jesus. So Jesus is the name of God incarnate. And then, so which is why, by the way, in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed, it's not a big deal for the Christian. Because we're like, well, we, don't, we didn't need a temple anyway. The temple has been replaced by Jesus. And then when Jesus dies, because Mary says, tear down this temple and I'll re rebuild it in three days. He's talking about his body. He is the new temple. And then when he is re, he's resurrected, now the temple curtain is ripped from top to bottom and there's no need for the temple anymore, right? So God's put his presence now with us. So now Jesus, of course, is everywhere, but he specifically baptizes his name onto us. So there was verse uh, number uh, six at the bottom, the Lord's name for the New Testament church, Matthew 28. He institutes holy baptism. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore, by the way, all authority in heaven on earth means he's in charge everywhere, all the time. That's, a, that's an important thing. So when you're in the hospital room and so many things are out of your control, you know that he is ultimately in charge and he knows what he's doing. And he, he knows what's best for us and he loves us. Sometimes that doesn't always make sense depending on the, what the doctor might be telling me. And yet I know He's in charge. He has authority in heaven and on earth. He has authority in this room and he knows what he's doing. Uh, he's on my side and I bear his name, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So baptizing and teaching go together and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. So we have his presence with us, Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. So we begin worship in his name. Uh, now, I've got a lot of, a bunch of questions here on this back page I hope to get to, but first, um, any quick baptism questions that you might have, just generally, take a breath here. There's lots of different ways you can go, lots of different applications about baptism or questions you might have. Yep. Why was it, um, Jesus baptized? The baptism of Jesus, very good. So uh, as you might recall, Jesus is baptized in, um, it's recounted in Luke, I think, believe Luke, Luke 3 and Matthew 3. And um, when Jesus is baptized, remember the, the heavens open up, you hear the voice of God saying, behold, this is my son, listen to him or hear him in the Greek. Uh, and then the, the, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. But it's confusing for Jesus to be baptized because I am baptized for one key purpose, I'm baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Like that picture on the front of our handout that the cross would be delivered to me. Why does Jesus need the cross? He doesn't have the problem of my 
of my sin. I need the forgiveness of sins, but Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't need it. So why was Jesus baptized? Well, Jesus' baptism is not the baptism that you and I enjoy. Jesus was baptized into the baptism of John the Baptist, which is a preparatory baptism of repentance leading to, leading to the baptism of Jesus. That's why the guys who were baptized by John the Baptist needed to be baptized in the baptism of Jesus. But it still begs the question, why? Why was Jesus baptized? Because it was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, that even for John the Baptist, right? So uh, in holy baptism, what happens with Jesus, one of, the, one of the things that happens is he is an anointed into the office of the Messiah. So he receives the name, but this is my son. Before God says that of Jesus, notice in the scriptures, where is, where is the devil in the Bible? Think about where the, think from the beginning. Here's our mirror or our stained glass windows that you guys never see because they're behind you. <laughs> uh, we, have the, we have the creation of Adam and Eve and then we get the action of the devil shortly thereafter. We see him appear and tempt Adam and Eve to sin. He's, he pops up briefly in the book of Job, right? So he's conversing with, with God about, about how Job is, he only believes in you because he's super rich and everything's going well for him. But if you take all that stuff away, then then he'll turn on you. And God says to the devil, fine, have your way with Job and see what happens. But then we don't, I mean, we see, certainly we see the action of the devil, but we don't have, we don't have like this, then the devil did this and that kind of conversation until the New Testament, after Jesus is baptized, immediately after Jesus is baptized, I mean, the text even says this, immediately after he's baptized, he goes out into the wilderness to be what? Tempted by the devil. So the devil goes after Jesus, after his baptism, because in his baptism, he is marked. Anointed means set apart or like a light, a flashlight is shined on him and says, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. So he's, he's placed into the office of Savior. So what you could, the way this picture, I think uh, Pastor Wolfmuller, a friend of mine from Colorado, has this really helpful picture that he, that he uses to make this distinction. When, uh, when you and I are baptized, you can imagine it like a whole herd of sheep uh, that are covered in just like icky. Have you seen a sheep like in, in real life? They don't, ha they don't have all the per perfect white fluffiness that the kids' toys have. They're covered in like bur burrs and weeds and grass hanging off and they stink. And so all these dirty sheep, they come down into this river or John, or we'll use, a, we'll use a pond, I think is better for the analogy. John the Baptist is down into the water. He's bringing all these sheep in. And as they come in, all that, all that icky comes off of them. And they come out the other side and they are shiny, bright, clean, and perfect. But all that icky is floating on top of the, the stagnant water. And then up walks a lamb that's already perfect. And it starts to come down towards the water and John the Baptist says, no, you don't need this. And Jesus says, no, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness, is the language he uses. And when he steps under the water, the water, the, the icky doesn't come off, but it goes on. So he absorbs the sin. So he's baptized into the sin of the world. So in, in the baptism of John the Baptist, by being anointed the savior, he's taking on the sin of the world. And he comes out the other side bearing all of our sin. So this is the, Luther talks about it as the great exchange, the swap that occurs with our sin and, uh, and, and, and the perfection of Jesus. So then now we're baptized and our sin is off of us and onto Jesus. Is that kind of helpful? Good. Um, who, I got a lot of questions there I could say. Uh, who baptizes? Who baptized, who baptized you, Hannah? Pastor. A pastor? Pastor Murley. Pastor Murley? Was he a good guy? Yeah. If he, if he was a bad guy, would it still count? How do you know it sticks if he ends up being like a bad guy later on in life? There's a bunch of heresies in the early church about that. <laughs> the, uh, this trick question. The answer is Jesus baptizes. The Pastor Murley, actually, I think I know of him, but uh, 
he, he, whether or not he was dressed like this, he was in the office of pastor only because he was the hands and mouth of the Lord Jesus. So it's, it's Jesus who is baptizing. And that's how, like, that's how we can disassociate it from the whether or not you like the guy who's wearing the stuff, whether or not you like me. It's why we cover up investments on Sunday morning especially. It's why when I go to the hospital, yesterday I was again convinced of why we do this. I go to the hospital to see Alice Holton who had a heart attack and she's got like dementia and uh, she doesn't even know where she, why she's in the hospital, what's going on. And the doctor is just kind of like, he's trying to figure out like, have you always had this pain in this particular place or whatever they were talking about? And um, the, 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 her son was here and then her daughter-in-law was here and her husband was right next to her and the doctor is here at the end of the bed. And he is trying to determine whether or not she's coherent to answer the questions that he's asking her. He goes, do you know who's around this, around this room? She's like, um, well, that's my husband, I think. There's pastor. She didn't know anybody else. She didn't know this. She knew this. So, it's, it's the, so God, she was reminded that Jesus was with her in that room because it wasn't about me. It's about this, this presence of the church, uh, the, the Lord's promises there with her. So in case you're ever wondering why we, I mean, for one, it's slimming and super easy to get dressed in the morning. It's annoying when you get a little kid and they spit up on you because their white really shows, you know, like scrub it out. But, but it actually reminds you and me that it's not about me. It's about what the Lord is doing through this office of the ministry. So it's the Lord who baptizes. And because the Lord baptizes, we don't, there's no such thing as a rebaptism. So have you heard this? There's a, you might, you might know someone who gets rebaptized, or if someone's like raised Lutheran or Catholic and they become a quote born again Christian in evangelical churches, they are rebaptized. Hence, Anabaptists, which today we call Baptists. Anna means again, baptize again. Uh, why would somebody be baptized again? It doesn't make it, did it not, did it not work the first time? Well, this, if you ever wondered about this major difference amongst Christian practice of baptisms, it kind of goes back to this. In Matthew 28, when Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and so forth, he, the, Jesus says to baptize, but um, I believe in a, a, a baptism that I need to choose. So once I make a decision for Jesus and become a believer on my own terms, not because mom and dad wanted it for me when I was a week old, but because I'm, I'm 19 years old and I've decided to to turn my life around and dedicate my life to Christ. Now, now I'm a believer. And now I can be baptized because baptism, this is a key distinction for the evangelical world. Baptism does not deliver the cross to us. Remember that picture from the front of our handout from last week where the cross is delivered to us today? But we weren't here. That's armless. That was Pastor uh, Stumpy there. <laughs> Uh, how does the cross get from us? To, so God is actually delivering the cross to us through the font, through, through holy baptism. But for the evangelical world, it's, it's called the, in, they're enthusiasts. Not that they're really excited about stuff, but enthusiasm in the sense that God works apart from means, that God zaps us like lightning according to his choosing. And so therefore, God doesn't, work in, God doesn't work through baptism. He doesn't work through the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is just this thing that we do to kind of remember that Jesus did it one time. Um, and there, I mean, there is that aspect to it, but it's also attached to the promises that Jesus is delivering the cross to us in the, in the Lord's Supper. Same with baptism. Yeah, we can remember that Jesus was baptized and Jesus did say to do it, but I'm not getting baptized simply because Jesus said to do it. He said to do it because he's attaching his name to me and he's delivering the cross to me. He's doing something. He's working through baptism. For the evangelical world, God doesn't work through it, but rather it is me showing my dedication to God. So baptism then is the first work that a Christian does to, to show forth, to confess his faith or her faith to the world. So if I was baptized as a baby, I wasn't a Christian yet because I hadn't made a decision for Jesus yet because I wasn't born like a dead raccoon on the side of the road, but I was born as a free will I can choose. And my, and my will isn't tainted enough by sin. I, I can actually make a decision for Christ. 
So you see that key distinction on my, whether or not, I, whether or not I'm incapacitated by my sin or whether or not I, I actually am free to make a decision for Christ. And now I make a decision for Jesus, then I need to be rebaptized. Uh, but if I, what's the word, relapse or what's the word for like backslide? Then that seems like because my life, so I, I was really excited about Jesus. I had a mountaintop experience. Things were on the up and up. And then lo and behold, I fell into sin again. Uh, I, did, I, I got back into that addiction that I was trying to break, whatever the thing was. And my life turned, turned back down into sin. And then I, having been down in the depths, I finally was brought to repentance and then I want to turn my life around again. That means last time I wasn't really a believer because I wouldn't have fallen that bad if I really believed last time. So this time I'm going to rededicate my life to Jesus and then I have to get baptized again because last time I wasn't really a believer yet. See this? So I'm constantly, so I look at my life and if I see sin, if I'm an evangelical, I see sin as evidence of my not being fully reformed yet. Whereas the, I mean, the historic Christian view, and this is why we talk about baptism, it's this ongoing, we start off church right off the bat saying that if you look at my life, I look like somebody who isn't a believer because I'm a sinner and I want to do better. I'd, I want to be free from my sin. I don't, I don't, want, I don't, I want, I don't want to be a slave to sin anymore. I want to be cut off from that. Lord, help me because I'm hurting myself, I'm hurting others. And so we confess our sin to God and we're forgiven. So there's a totally different picture here, this expectation of sin and the forgiveness of Jesus. And it's done, the forgiveness that is delivered in holy baptism is done fully by the work of Jesus. And therefore we are passive in this. Infant baptism therefore, like underscores the passivity of us in, in saving ourselves. No more than, than, I, than a baby can save themselves. The baby doesn't even confess the faith. You notice that? It'd be kind of creepy if, if they did. I, was, I always joke with the parents because everyone, I mean, you don't have that many baptisms in your life for your children. So, so you, you get your hymnal and they come up here for the baptism and, I, and I'll say to the, to the person, um, do you, the first question I ask of the parents, do you renounce the devil? Because we renounce the devil and all of his works and all of his ways. Like I, but I ask Addison, I'll say, Addison Grace, do you renounce the devil? And then the parents are looking on like, like she's gonna answer the question. I'm like, this is your line. Like 50% of the time there's radio silence. And I'm like, this is your, your guy's turn to talk. Yes, I renounce him. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yes, I believe. Do you desire to be baptized? Do you, Addison, desire to be baptized? Mom and dad say, yes, I do. So the parents are confessing the faith in which the child is, into which the child is being baptized and in which that child will be raised. That's why, by the way, we have the, the church's practice of godparents. We, the, Jesus never said to use godparents. But think back to the baptism of Jesus. As soon as I come out of the font, there's a big target on my back for the devil. And if I'm living in the first century, when there's a lot of adult baptisms occurring, of, of parents with little babies at home, and I come out of that font in the first century, there's a, a target on my back isn't just for the devil, but it's also who? All of Rome and the Jews. So the Christians are so highly persecuted that if I'm baptized, the odds of me being persecuted go way up and I'm willing to face that eternally. And so we have the godparents so that if something were to happen to me, I want my kids taught this faith so that I'll see them again. And so that's the idea. You don't have to have godparents. It doesn't discredit your, I don't, I don't even have godparents myself. Um, but like, that's the idea behind godparents. It's not just, hey, I was the best man in your wedding. We were frat brothers together. That, when that happens here, it's always funny because that guy has no idea what's going on. And I'm always like telling, so this is the guy you want raising your kids in the faith? That guy doesn't even know who, what we're doing here. So I'm trying to, I always try to tell the parents who they should, the kind of person they're looking for in their gut. But the problem is they already, tell, they already tell the person when they're six months pregnant, when they're not even going to church, they pick their godparents. And it's always like the best man from their wedding who's like now totally 
non-believer and they come up here to church and I'm asking them, do you desire to rate, will you model the faith for this child? And they're like, oh, I will with the help of God. I should look up what that means. Yes, Susan. What is a... Um, so there is no, there is no rebaptism. So if there's a baptism, if it's done in the Lord's name, so if it's not done in the Lord's name or if it doesn't use water, if you baptize someone with sand, but you use the words, the problem is the, f- the further we get from the, the words of Jesus, all we've done is introduce doubt. And the Lord would not have us doubt. And so our desire is to be as close to, within reason, as, as close to the, the words of Jesus as possible. So he instituted baptism using water. So we, we do that. Um, but if, so like it was trendy in like the 80s or whatever, for some churches would baptize in the name of creator, redeemer, sustainer. That's what they do, but not who they are. That just creates doubt. He, he said, baptize them to my name. My name isn't pastor, even though it's on my name tag. My name is Seth, right? So, when you, so I don't baptize into the author of what God does, but of, of who he is, that's his name. But if there's doubt, like with um, in emergency baptisms, Luther actually writes about this one time when there's like a, there's a, a nurse at a hospital and there's a, there's a baby we think is gonna die and there's a quick baptism there or the, a home birth, maybe a, some mom goes into labor. I mean, home births are obviously very, very common back then. Um, the mom, without the presence of a priest or anybody, she's, she baptizes the baby. But then she starts to wonder, like, did it count? Um, did, like, I wasn't a pastor. Obviously, people, Christians can do baptisms. And yet, there's like, did I get it? Did I say that? Did I do it right? Did I say the right stuff? Did I get water on? So the Lord would have her free of doubt. So I would say to that mother, so on Sunday, we're going to have a baptism. We're gonna baptize your baby. And we're gonna put the date on there this day. It's gonna remove doubt. Um, so it, was the first baptism the efficacious one? Yes. But to remove her doubt, we're doing it. So I wouldn't say we're gonna baptize again just to make sure it took. We're gonna to say, no, we're gonna baptize the baby to bring certainty, right? Something like a baptist converts and says, I was baptized 17 times. The first baptism took, the rest of us a waste of time and water. <laughs> yes, okay, the first one we're sure that was correct, okay. Right, and, and during our life, we are constantly, this is the, the difference in perspective, is we are, we are constantly becoming the prodigal son and wandering off, and all of us differently at different times in our lives and in different ways, wandering into the pig pens of life, and then he brings us home because we bear his name and where he puts his name, he says, I am with you always. Now, when we wander off, it's not good, it's not safe because when you cut off limbs from branches, uh, limbs from trees, they don't live very long. Um, And when we wander off from the Lord, we tend to get ourselves in more and more trouble and we remove ourselves from God's ordering of this world and that God's, God's law, which we'll talk about next week, is there for our good. It's not because he wants to kill our fun, but he's trying to protect us from ourselves. So the further I wander off, the more I get in trouble, but like he's always calling me back. And he even works through my own failures and my, to, to bring me to such a low point that he brings me back. That's always the comfort for parents whose children wander off, that the Lord will maybe not in my life, but the Lord will bring them home. And that's the comfort I give to parents all the time. Hey, we, we baptized him or her into the Lord's name and he's with her and um, he's promised to be with her. And so we pray for him to bring her to repentance and to protect her from the devil and herself until he brings her home. Good. So the, any other, any other questions? I mean, it's good, good questions. So we, uh, I'll look at my questions real quick. Next week, I'll do some of the, all that stuff at the bottom where it says, if time allows, time's not allowing. So we'll talk about it next week. Um, we, if you'll notice the, all the, maybe this Sunday during worship, look at your bullets and watch all the different times the Lord's name pops up. And in the readings, it's like one of these things you don't really notice. We're always either saying the Lord's name 
uh, during the divine service, whenever we're singing like the Gloria, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy, depending on the, the arrangement that we're doing, we, we teach the acolytes to bow and the pastors will bow uh, because, for one, it makes sure that they're awake and they're paying attention. It gives, I think you give them something to listen for, then they'll pay attention. Uh, but then, but also like it's teaching them. It's the same reason why. If it, no, watch, I'm always pointing at the board here. You guys can't even see the thing I'm pointing at. But the altar, um, when the when the acolytes come up, they they bow, and then they light the candles, and then they before they exit the chancel, they kneel. Why is that complicated? Well. We do whatever, it doesn't matter. And if no one's in here, I'm like running up there with the lighter, just lighting it real irreverently sometimes because I'm in a hurry or something. But the, it's the symbolism that the, those candles are, Jesus is the light of the world. The candles are representing the presence of God and you kneel before a king and you bow before a king. So when, we, when the Lord's name comes up in the service, we have the acolytes bow to remind them that the Lord's name is his presence. So when we say the Lord's name, we're not talking about him. He's here, but I don't see him. I need to remind myself because my eyes don't see him, but my ears are hearing him. So I'm, I'm, my posture is reminding me. It's all man-made stuff just to try to remind my body that I'm in the presence of God. Um, and then at the end of the service, we do this silly thing. At the end of church, every church does this differently and it's all terrible. There's no clean way to get out of church. Like you get, you finish, we could just leave. But then like, if I want Mitch Cole to come to Oktoberfest on Saturday, I gotta say, hey, we have Oktoberfest next Saturday. You should come. And if, if I save my announcements for Bible study, then I recognize a lot of people who are maybe here aren't gonna hear the announcements. And I want you to come to Oktoberfest so I can get to know you better so that I can convince you to come to Bible study. <laughs> so I, we make the announcements at the end of the church. And then when you finish the announcements, you're like, and for, I, I try to keep the announcements quick. And then you just, bye. <laughs> How do you get out of here? How do you end this thing? You know, what do you say? Some churches will say, well, we go, go in peace and serve the Lord. A lot of pastors will say that, and that's not bad. What's funny is that here in this church, there was a clear, by preceding me, there's a teaching that go in peace, serve the Lord. The last thing you hear from your pastor is do something. I'm giving you law as I send you out the door. Now you're, you serve the Lord. Same with that sign, the well-intentioned sign. You see it outside of some churches. You are now entering the mission field, which has me thinking about my life. Like, so, I, so me being a plumber, that doesn't matter. Like everything I'm doing has to be in service to me being a missionary for God. It discredits other vocations. And it, it, it's like God has given me stuff to do. What's the, I mean, it's, again, it's not bad, but so the, the intention here was they said, go in peace, you are free. So you hear the gospel on your way up. But the problem is, my first week here, I'm like, it's like, it's like you're, you're admitting that the people are in prison while they're here. <laughs> and when it's over, you're saying, go in peace, you're free now. The, the shackles are off, you can escape. So then a couple years ago, we changed it to, uh, we go forth in our Lord's name. So as we leave this place, we bear the Lord's name wherever we go. And it's a weird thing to say, and I say it in a funny way. Go forth, who talks that way? But it makes you think about it, has the kids asking about it, and we can talk about the name as we go. Well, that's why we say what we say. And now it may, hopefully it'll make more sense to you. We, we recognize that we begin in the name, we end in the name, and that name is bringing God's presence with us everywhere we go. And that brings more value to like, when I wake up in the morning, as Luther says, make the sign of the cross and say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't have to make the sign of the cross, whatever, but I, I, that, that reminding me that when I say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm actually reminding myself that God is on me. I'm covered in the holiness of Jesus and he's with me everywhere that I go. This, before my feet hit the ground in the bed, I, it, as soon as I wake up in the morning, hey, I'm alive. One day I'm gonna open my eyes and I'll be in heaven. So today's like practice. I'm opening my eyes and the Lord's with me. And until I open my eyes in heaven, I get to live today serving him, enjoy whatever he's gonna, wherever I go, he's gonna be with me. Whatever sin I commit, he's gonna forgive me. It's a joyful way to live, right? And I go to bed at night, same way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the sins that I've committed, he's forgiven. All the shame that I'm in, he's cleaned. The things that I'm afraid of, he has taken care of. I'm okay, I commend it all to his care. And then we go to bed and you wake up at 2 a.m. worried about something, 
So you do it again. <laughs> All right, good. We're, we're at, uh, at any, any final questions or thoughts on baptism stuff? A lot of different church practices, like how much water and how much immersion. We don't get wrapped up in the, in the, con the amount of water is irrelevant. It's just that the Lord attaches his name to these physical things because we are tactical, tac tactile people. If I don't have, so, so just for, I'm gonna go over like one minute here. Just, this is helpful, I think. I'm always looking for something to give me like physical evidence that I'm saved. I want evidence, I want, I want a measurable uh, guarantee that I am saved. And in the absence of looking at the things that God's given me, I'm gonna come up with my own. So if I give you a, lo a long list of ways to talk about uh, how faithful you, how, how to demonstrate your faith, I'm gonna talk about things like don't be, don't be chasing the idols of this world. The main one is money. And then I'm gonna say, pass the plates. And that, and that becomes a very measurable way for you to demonstrate your faith and a great way to raise money for a church. Because now I'm trying to equate for you the, the, the comfort of your salvation with the amount of money you give to the church or something, just nonsense like that. Or I'm gonna say, I know I'm saved because look at my life, how I speak the things I look at, the things I listen to, the way I treat my neighbor. I'm gonna look at my life. And the problem is when I measure my life according to the law, I'm always gonna find sin. I'm not gonna be comforted. I'm gonna find more reasons to despair. And yet I'm constantly looking for something tactile. And so God says, okay, you want something tactile? Fine. Water is tactical and it's readily available. It falls from the sky, right? So every time you're worried about whether or not you're saved, touch the water. Is it wet? You're saved in the same, with the same certainty, right? So he attaches, this, he attaches these non-physical truths to physical things so that we can have this constant assurance. And so, the, so that's why the water, that's why the bread and wine. So he's, he's using these physical things. Next time we'll, um, we'll get into the Ten Commandments and, um, and also talk, I'll start kind of getting at, at, at maybe a 10,000 foot view on like some differences among the denominations of Christian churches, more so from the perspective of the starting point. So like if you start, if you start in one place, uh, you could, two people can start in the same place and be facing different directions and go completely different directions, right? So if you're starting with God's word, with a certain perspective of God's word, and it's the wrong perspective, then you'll end up with crazy things in your church or no church at all. So what's, so what's the starting point and how do we know that that's the right starting point? Uh, so yeah, so if you, again, if you can't make it next week, we'll, we'll have the recording posted online. And, um, and any questions you guys have during the week, shoot me an email, or let me know um, if, you can't, if, you, if you can't be here or, or something. Next Saturday, um, or next, next Wednesday is our 20-something group for those of you in your 20-somethings, 30-somethings. Um, and then next Saturday is the, uh, our Oktoberfest. Strongly encourage you guys to come. Uh, it's like my first year here, we had like 1,500 people. Like there was an intentional effort to get as many people on camp. I think I told you the story already. We had like tons of people here. And it didn't really lead into anybody joining the church. It just led to us spending a lot of money. So instead, we're like, let's just keep it simple and have some bratwurst and some homebrew and have a bouncy house for the kids. Because I want people sitting together and just chatting, getting to know more people at church. So in a fun environment, that's the idea. So it's free, <clears throat> totally free. Uh, Saturday, so next Saturday afternoon. So I'll be able to remind you next Saturday in our new member class. But if you, can, if you get it on your radar, I know it means driving back and forth a couple of times for those of you who have a drive, but it's, it's worth it. It's like from three to seven. Um, it's just a fun, a fun afternoon. So um, that's our end of our announcements. Uh, you might have a question if you want. You're like, I'm not a member of Bethany yet, but I kind of want to, I want to be in that directory because I wanna, I'm going to be in the, I'm going to be in the congregation by the time the directories come out. So yeah, so you're planning on joining the church. Be sure to sign up for the directory, especially you guys, so people can get to know you um, by your face. Let's close with, uh, with the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you. Sorry for going.